Amen. Well, you guys go ahead and take a seat, and if you have a Bible um, or your journal, uh, the Second Timothy journal that we've given out, I hope you have one. Grab it and turn with me to Second Timothy chapter one. Second Timothy chapter one. Um, today we're going to close out the chapter that we've been walking through for the last couple of weeks. So if you're new here, we're we're going on this journey through the book of Second Timothy for a couple months and. Um, it's Paul's last letter that he ever wrote, and there's so much wisdom that you can learn from somebody when it's their last letter. So today, we're going to look at the last two verses. I think it's verses 15 and 16. No, um, I think it's like 17 18. You'll find it in your book. Um, and I hope that what you see is, for many of us, as, as you walk through this passage, it, it's one of those that you just kind of read over, that you, you kind of skim through and go on to the next one. But if you'll pause for a second and feel what Paul is feeling, and I'm going to set this up for you and, and really dig into the emotion of what's going on here. There is some great lessons to be learned here. Paul is about to contrast what it looks like for those who stay with him and those who leave. He's going to give you two examples. He's going to give you a, an example of a positive type of a person who stays and a negative type of those who left when things got hard. If I'm honest with you, I feel that. I feel that because um, my job, and I love this about my job, but my job is invested deeply relationally, and I feel every bit of when people stay and when people go. And most of the time when people leave, they leave for great reasons, new job or a new family opportunity or whatever the case may be. Yet, at the same time, you still feel that. You feel years of investment in relationships, and I think that's what Paul is feeling here. I think about church planting. Uh, if you're new here, we, we, my family, moved here with a group of people in this room about three and a half, no, four years ago now, the church about three and a half years old, to plant this church. And planting a church feels a bit like planting a fruit tree. And I know what you're thinking, because I thought the same thing. That guy doesn't know anything about planting trees. You're right. I've never done this, so it's all theoretical. But... What you think is, is you, you put the tree or you put the, the seed in the ground and it feels like you just work really hard and there's no results, right? You feel like, uh, I water this thing, I till the soil, I work really hard and day after day after day and then ultimately one day um, something pops up and there's fruit on it. That's what this feels like. It feels like on the surface there's not a whole lot going on and yet all of us know that underneath the surface that the roots in the, are starting to take and the soil is starting to move and and the longer you're around, what you see is that God is changing lives, even if you don't feel it in that moment. But here's, here's the truth, and here's the amazing thing, and I told this to the first service too, is um, for those of you who have been here a while, you know that we planted this church in August of 2018. A year and a half later, you walk through the greatest tragedy, if you will, in our generation, a, a global pandemic that shut down the world, and it felt like... There have been moments when it's felt like it's just me and my kids in the room or, you know, just like four of us gathered together. And what I've found is the longer we've stuck it out and the longer we've gathered together, the more God is moving. Clayton said this earlier, over the last six weeks, we've seen God continue to bring more and more and more people. And as we've gathered here, here's what I want you to hear me say in the most pastoral of ways, it's, it's worth it. Not only are we seeing more people in our room than we've seen in the last couple years, but you see breakthrough. You see life change. I can, I can look around this room, and if I don't stare into these blinding lights and I do this, I see your faces, and I know your experience. And those of us who have walked through this, you almost feel a bit like what you're going to see Paul talking about here. You almost feel a bit of this amazing um, love that you have for a friend that sticks with you till the end. 
what we've seen, and it's starting to be really fun, is we've seen God do amazing things. We, we've seen God fill up this gathering to the point in which it's spilling over into the next one. We've seen God change lives. I think just in the last week, I've heard from multiple people that want to be baptized. So I, I hear stories of how God's continuing to change your life. And, and our staff, we're having so much fun right now working in this place. And all that has happened because of the investments that have been made. The way that you guys have invested in my family and dug in with us during some of the hardest times, seeing the way that you've invested and hung out with one another and put your lives together. I, I watch small groups who literally sit together in these rooms because you guys have become best friends. And here's what I know. None of that just happens. It takes time. It takes hard work, tilling soil, investing in relationships, just like you don't just have a fruit tree all of a sudden pop up. People worked hard to cultivate that. It takes choosing to overlook offenses. It takes us sacrificing with one another, and it is costly, and yet it's worth the reward. That's the story of all relationships, isn't it? All relationships, although they're worth it, take a lot of investment, and they're not easy because anything worth having in this life is costly. Maybe you've experienced that before. Maybe you think about it. It's maybe your marriage relationship or a mentoring relationship or managing people and I tried so hard to alliterate but that's not my that's not my thing so Neely is like why don't you just say mates I was like how about friends but you know what we're going to keep it Southern Baptist in the alliteration and maybe it's a, a mate here uh, isn't it true that all of these take a tremendous amount of work but when you look back on them don't they shape you more than you've shaped them isn't it true also that it takes a tremendous amount of risk Maybe it's a mentoring relationship. I mentor a kid right now, and I have been for a couple years, and oftentimes you invest, you invest deeply into these relationships, and sometimes you, you don't see a whole lot of return on your investment. Right? You pour into somebody, you spend time, you get up every single week with them, and, and, and you sacrifice your time and your energy, and all of a sudden you see that they're not doing anything that you've asked them to do, or maybe it's marriage. You know, the reason why so many marriages are failing is because marriage is hard work. Maybe it's managing people. Did you know that this year, statistically speaking, 50% of people, they say, are going to take another job somewhere else? And you've invested time and, 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 your, and your energy into managing people and to the point in which you kind of feel like, man, that was a lot of work. And if you don't see the whole picture, if you don't have any, a kingdom mindset, then you kind of feel like it's a failure. Or maybe the hardest one is friendships. You know, they say statistically that only one in four Americans have a friend at all. Right now, that's 75% of us don't have any friends. And the reason for that is because they're risky, they're hard, it's dangerous to put yourself in a vulnerable position. Sometimes I think it's easier just not to engage. But the safe route makes you miss out on so many of God's greatest joys of your life. Y'all, disappointment is real. It's real, and I'm convinced that there are so many of us that won't experience the joy of victory because we're not willing to weather the storm of disappointment. And I'm just glad, I am glad that in the darkest times over the last couple years, we have stuck it out. Because what we're seeing right now is the fruit of joy, of victory, and it's a long journey, but it's relational. It is every way that has, we've dug in together, God is continuing to bear fruit. See, that's the, minute, that's the message that Paul has for Timothy today. He's going to use these two different examples to point to something, and the point is very clear. You can write it down. Those who stick it out, and stay faithful are the people who make an impact. That's, that's the main point that Paul wants Timothy to know. 
Look at it with me in verse 15. Here's what he says. Paul says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Homogenes. Now, there are a couple points that I want to make really quickly, just even in this one little short text that will set the tone for everything that Paul is about to say. First, could you imagine being these guys? All of us want our names etched in history, right? We're kind of thinking, oh, they got their names in the Bible for all the wrong reasons. Think think about it. The rest of human history, what they're going to be known for is being the guys who stunk at being good friends. Life lesson number one, don't be that guy. Here's what I mean by that, in all seriousness, these two guys, I believe that if they would have known who Paul was going to be, they just thought Paul was going to be another guy who who had a failing career that ended up being beheaded by Nero. So they walked away from him in his darkest moments. If they would have known the Apostle Paul would have had the greatest impact that he made, I don't think that they would have walked away from him. This is just one practical reason why you shouldn't walk away from people, but let me give you another one. Human dignity matters. The book of Hebrews says you don't even know if you're going to entertain angels. You don't know who you're going to rub shoulders with every day, and yet you should treat everybody with kindness and stick it out with them because what their lives matter. Here's life lesson number two. Don't name your kids Phygelus and Hermogenes. Amen. No, but seriously, here, here, here it is. Not everybody who claims to be your friends is friends. See, one of the things I love about Paul, if you look at his writings, he is so relationally rich. Every book that he writes, go study any Pauline literature, he's always calling out his friends. He, you look at the end of 2 Timothy, he's going to do it again. He's going to talk about his friends like Luke who stayed with him and Mark and all the other guys. And he has so many of these friends and he cared so deeply about them. And these people were obviously his friends and yet when times got hard, they walked away. See, one of the things I've learned is when the world rejects you, that's hard, but I can get over that. But when my friends who are in the deepest, darkest battle with me walk away from me, that stings. That stings, and that's what Paul's feeling. I know our situations are different, and I'm pointing back to this because I feel like it's relevant at some point, Um, but COVID was kind of this way. Like, look, guys, let's just be real with you. I knew that we would make decisions at this church that people would disagree with, and I was okay with that. You know I was okay with that? Because we were just trying to do the best we could with the information we had. None of us really knew. None of us really knew. We were walking through the hardest time of our life, and you just did the best you could with the information you had, and I knew that not everybody would agree with that. I knew that one day, and I still believe this, I'm probably going to look back and be like, I might have done that differently. But in the moment, you did the best you could. That wasn't hard for me. What was hard for me was some of the people that we started with that just decided they couldn't stick it out anymore. And and hear me, I'm not mad or anything, but those wounds hurt so deeply that I feel like if, if that's at all what Paul felt with these friends, like this was a desperate time for him. You know how I know that this was so hard for him? Read the text carefully. Look at verse 15 again. I want to point something out to you. You are aware that all, circle that word all, who are in Asia turned away from me. Now, is that really true in the literal sense? Well, no. The capital of Asia Minor was Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor at the church at Ephesus. Timothy didn't turn away from him. Therefore, not all in Asia actually turned away from him. But do you know why this is so powerful? It's because it's a genuinely human statement. Paul was hurting. 
And that's how it felt. That's how it felt. When, when you think about Paul, you think about this rock of a man that was willing to walk into any situation. He was, he was willing to take down kings and kingdoms and travel to the ends of the earth to do anything, and yet Paul was so disappointed in this moment that it felt like everyone had abandoned him. Now think about that. I mean, he's not the only one. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you feel like, like you're the only one that gets this, or you're the only one that, that ever gets offended, and you feel like that you're remarkably vulnerable, and yet at this moment, the reason why I love the Bible so much is because the Bible is so genuinely human. It doesn't tell you to be perfect. It tells you that there are people like the Apostle Paul that hurt badly. He was sitting in a jail cell awaiting his execution and he feels like the entire world has turned against him. It almost feels like that moment when John the Baptist in the Gospels, he goes to Herod, and Herod is doing something awful. And he goes to call him out because he knows that it's right. So he does the courageous thing, and it ends up getting its head chopped off. And, and in that moment, when he, gets, when he does the right thing, he, he's so desperate that he even writes to Jesus a letter and says, Are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Because I'm sitting here suffering, and it seems like you're nowhere to be found. Again, you know why that's so important? Because I know you felt that way too. And there's something powerful about that moment when you're like, I know, I know I'm not the only one. This is a genuinely human statement. It enters into the depths of our emotions and it gets real because most of us kind of live up here. And, and up here doesn't really change a whole lot. Right? When you're living up here and you don't really need a whole lot of Bible knowledge to know how to function when things seem to be good. It's when you get down into this space that's really hard. And Paul is getting down into that space. Here's what Paul is doing. Paul is opening up his heart and he's exposing his true humanity. He's using a literary term called, called hyperbole. Now, if you need help with hyperbole, my kids are experts in this. You always do this. You never let me have any candy after like four donuts, right? They, they, they say this all the time because in their human experience, that's what they feel. Even if it's not necessarily true, Paul is experiencing something, and that's what he feels. He feels like everybody has left him. He's in a tough place. He's in a tough, tough place. Paul was depressed, and he was lonely. Y'all, can you just sit in that moment for a second and feel what Paul's feeling? I know you can. Do you know why I know you can? The unintended consequences of the last pandemic is loneliness. It's become the next major epidemic in our world. Did you know that 21 million people in America right now, they say, have experienced what they call major depression last year alone? According to the National Institute of Mental Health, that means that they needed medical intervention and they contemplated suicide. Not only that, you know, 36% of all Americans say that they are extremely lonely, 61% of young adults say that, and 51% of moms say that they are severely lonely. So I know you feel what Paul feels. It's super easy to feel that way. It's super easy to feel like the whole world is against you and everybody has left you. You're not alone. And the thing is, is when you realize that this is not actually your true situation, you have to call out what you know or else you will fall into the same hyperbolic trap that continues to make an exaggeration of the reality of your life. So here's the reality. Here's the reality is you are not alone. And you need to call out that truth. So let me just give you four simple ways that you can call out the truth. Here's number one. Call out scripture. Read scripture out loud. I, I tell you that because most of the time, even when you're reading scripture, you need to let your voice hear it yourself. So take the promises of scripture and read them out loud. Like Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Think about that. He says he is the truth. How often do we need to hear that whenever all these lies continue to be mounting up in our own minds? We need to be reminded that, Jesus, you are truth. You are true, and what you say about me matters. You told me that you know every hair on my head. You told me that I was valuable enough, like John 3, 16, that you loved me so much that you would die for me. Call that out. Number two is pray. I know those two things we talk about a lot, but prayer is the most powerful tool that you have to recalibrate your life as a reminder that God is in control and he loves you. That's why prayer is so humbling, because it puts you in a position to where you have to look up. Number three is this, have some good friends. I know we're talking about friendship, but have some good friends. Friends that can call out the truth in your life when you can't see it yourself. Now, here's what that's going to take. It's going to take you actually having people around you. Right? You got to be close enough to people for them to know you enough to be able to say that. Number four, super, super simple, is this. You have to know the truth so you can run from the lies. It goes back. It's cyclical. Back to number one. The only way you're going to actually be able to reinterpret or interpret at all what culture says about you is to know the right lens to look through, and the right lens to look through is God's word. See, when these guys abandoned Paul, it made him feel like the entire world was against him. He's sitting in prison again. It's all coming to an end, and his friends are gone. He needed to know the truth and be reminded of the truth, which here's the truth. Next point, next observation is friends. Friends stay when things get hard. Paul's about to make the contrast between those who stay and those who go. And the, and the main characteristic between the two, between a true friend and a false friend, was the ones who stayed with him. It was the ones who dug in when things got hard. Do you know how impactful it is whenever somebody decides that they're going to stay in the fight with you? Most of us, because it's the, the world we live in right now, um, have heard of a guy that you probably had ne never heard of three weeks ago, a guy named Vladimir Zelensky. Do you know why he's famous? Not because of his politics. Most of us don't even know his politics. It's because he decided not to leave. In maybe the most boss statement I've ever heard in my entire life, he talks about how when the president of the United States, when President Biden called him to try to get him out of the country, he says, Mr. President, I don't need your ride. I need your ammo. I'm not leaving my people. I'm sticking it out. Do you know why that's so important? Because as a friend who stuck out the battle, you know what he did? He energized the entire world around this heroic statement that he is fighting the battle with his friends. The greatest friends that I have in my life are the ones who stuck it out. It's not the people who were perfect. I think about Dustin and Clayton, our two elders here with me, that these two men have gone through the, the good, the bad, and the ugly with me. And yes, we probably aggravate each other all the time. I get that. Like, I'm, I'm not naive. I probably aggravate them. They probably aggravate me. But the reality is, I would go to battle with those guys in a heartbeat because we have proven that we will stick it out no matter what, because we have a common goal. And that is to see God build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven through City Church. For Paul, the thing that hurt him more than anything was the fact that the moment when things got hard, those guys left him. It felt like he was sitting in prison all alone. And now, now, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you, you realize this. Timothy's on the edge of a cliff. He is struggling. And Paul's like, just don't leave. Just don't leave, Timothy. I need you to battle with me. That's the point. Timothy needed to stick it out in the battle. He needed to share in his sufferings. Now, here's the last thing. Because they go together. Friendship goes both ways. See, as much as Timothy needed to hear this message, I kind of get the sense that Paul needed Timothy to stick it out. 
I kind of, he's like, man, I need you to battle with me. If you leave me like those guys do in my loneliest hour, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to get through this. Listen to me. Don't underestimate the power of friendship. Digging in together is one of the most powerful tools that you have in the hardest times of life. That's why community matters. We're built for it. We're designed to live together. I know it's cliche, but we really are better together. Now, let me show you. Look at verse 16. Let me show you Paul's contrasting point. All right? Verse 16, here's what he says. May the, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. You see the contrast. By jealous and homogenies, they left. But may the, grant, may the Lord grant mercy to Onesiphorus because he found me. He searched for me and he dug in with me. Did you know that statistically 70% of the world's population lives in what they call a communal environment where they still rely on one another for their daily needs? We are legitimately the first society ever in human history to supply chain our ways to independence and it's destroying us. I know that like the Industrial Revolution did a lot of awesome things. It made food accessible, it made life a lot easier, but do you know what it did? It made relationships scarce. Guys, our lack of real community, our lack of real need for one another is one of the main reasons that we are experiencing the fracturing of our society the way that we are. I've said it a million times, and let me just say it again. Proximity breeds empathy. Being together in close proximity with one another allows you to enter into the stories and the experiences of one another, and it allows you to feel what they're feeling and dig in together and build and grow together. Onesiphorus, that's what he did. He chose to be close enough to Paul to enter in. So when was the last time? When was the last time you had somebody sit around your dinner table that you made margin for that doesn't look like you, doesn't act like you, and didn't vote like you? I think one of the most powerful things we can start doing to bring the world into full color is to invite people around our dinner table that don't think like us, that we can learn from. When was the last time? I'll give you a couple examples. Like if you're in the majority culture like I am, that you've invited somebody in the minority culture and asked them, what is it like to be black in America? Or we have, we have a couple people on our staff like Ian from Bolivia and Nelia from South Africa. When was the last time we invited them around and asked them the question, hey, what do you experience when you experience America? When you see us outside of my worldview, how do you experience me? The one I think about often is, when was the last time you grabbed one of the wives at our church of a police officer and asked her what it feels like to be home with her kids at night when her husband is out trying to protect our community? Guys, I think that before we criticize, we should try to think and understand their positions. And it doesn't actually mean that you have to agree with everything that everybody says, but at least when you enter in in your proximity, it breeds empathy to see the world in full view. There is something powerful about entering into somebody else's story and feeling what they feel, and you start to see the world from a different perspective. I think we've created a society that doesn't think that we need to enter into each other's pain at all because we have, we have, again, we've created a world in which we can do it all on our own, and the reality is that's not true. We need each other, and the last two years have exposed that more than ever before. We need each other's sacrifices, and we need each other's encouragements. Listen to me. I would rather be relationally rich and experientially poor than be experientially rich and relationally poor. Here's what I mean. This is so important. 
when I think about my life and my kids, and I think about all the experiences that they might be able to have. I don't want them to play on every uh, travel sports team and have every experience and go on every trip if they don't get to experience the relationships that we have right here. Because it's in these relationships that we dig into one another's lives that actually gets us to the place to where we get to have healthy, loving relationships with not just one another, but even with our whole society. As my friend J.D. Greer said it, and I think this is so important, some of us care more about where our kids go to college than where they spend eternity. And we'd rather give them a bunch of different experiences than have them enter into all these relationships. There's a pastor in San Diego. His name's um, Larry Osborne. And he was telling this story once whenever I was around. He said, um, he said I had to go into a parent-teacher conference for my eight-year-old because he had a D. <clears throat> and he said, we sat down at the parent-teacher conference and the teacher's going on and on how concerned she is about his grades. And, and he says, hey, I, I, I want to be really respectful, but can I, can I stop and ask you a question real quick? She's sure. She's like, I, I just have two questions. He says, does my, does my son get along well with others, and is he respectful to you? She's like, of course. He's a great kid, but I, I need to talk about his grades. And he's like, with all due respect, he's eight. I don't really care about his grades all that much right now. And he looked at me, and he says, Billy, here's what I want you to know. When you're 30 or when your kids are 30, nobody's going to care that they had a 4.0 GPA or that they were a high school MVP or whatever. He goes, I wanted to stop investing in my kids and the things that ultimately didn't matter at the expense of the things that did. And he looked at me and he says, by the way, my kid has a PhD now. He turned out okay. He goes, what if we stopped? What if we stopped trying to make everybody experientially rich? Like, I've got to do all this and got to do that. I've got to be in all this stuff. And we just started investing in our people just being good people, loving people well, being um, respectful to the people around them. His point was, if we want to build a community, we've got to build character and relationships more than we build experiences. I think that relationships are the most powerful tool we have to build up and love each other well. When we are intentionally diversifying our lives and sacrificing for the expense of other people, we don't need all the experiences. We go deep with people and we're actually filled up. I love the way Tim Keller talks about love. Listen to what he says. Tim Keller says, biblical love is inconveniencing ourselves so that other people's lives become a little more convenient. Isn't that the picture of Onesiphorus? When you look at it, he inconveniences himself over and over again, and then what he does is he enriches Paul, and he's going to enrich himself. You know, there's a connection here. If you look carefully at this passage, and it's that word ashamed, you notice that. He talks about how Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed. The reason why that's important is because it connects the entire first chapter. He tells, him, he tells Timothy in verse 3, don't be ashamed of the gospel or the testimony. And then he says in verse 8, I'm not ashamed of the testimony. And then in verse 12, he says, Onesiphorus isn't ashamed. The reason why that's important, again, is he's showing Timothy a real-world example of somebody who was faithful and a friend when he needed him the most. He was saying, Timothy, you can do this. You can endure and you can not give in because, because there's other people who have gone through exactly what you're going through and they've made it. Timothy, that's what a friend looks like. I mean, isn't it true? Isn't it true in life when things get really hard? Like, it's important that we have examples of people who have made it. Like, this week, um, my wife, my amazing wife is out of town on a retreat, which means I'm at home with all three kids. And there have been moments where I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. Lord Jesus, I don't know if I can do this. And then I talk to people like Dan and Jim who have grown kids. And you know what they constantly tell me? 
Not only can you do this, but one day you're going to look back on it and you wish you could do it again. Like you can get through this, but don't miss the moment. You know how powerful that is? It kind of resets your whole thinking, doesn't it? Like, my kid, I'm not there to babysit my kids. I'm there to enjoy them. So let me just stop for a second and enjoy what's right in front of me. I think that that's the reminder for Timothy. Timothy, there's an example. His name's Onesiphorus, and he did it, and he did it well. You can do this too. Let me give you three practical things real quickly about what it looks like to be a good friend according to this passage. Here's number one. He refreshed Paul with his presence. Do you see it? Look at the passage. For he often refreshed me. It's almost like he was saying he was a breath of fresh air. When he showed up, just being in the room and being present was a breath of fresh air for Paul in his deepest, darkest moments. Now, there are two things that are absolutely incredible with just these first four words here. The first one is that word refreshed. It's actually the only time in the entire Bible that it's used, and it comes from the root word that actually shares the same root word as soul or sark. Here's what he's saying. Listen, this is so, so awesome. Paul is saying that there's something powerful about being present that actually can refresh your soul like nothing else. That's maybe why the book of Hebrews says don't neglect meeting together regularly. Sometimes it's just the simple act of being in the room that's so encouraging. I can just tell you, there have been moments when I walked in this room and it's like nine of us. And it's still like, you know what? Nine of us showed up. Praise God. Let's go. Let's go. Because being in the room matters so much. Some of the, the sweetest times in my ministry career have been whenever I've been invited over to somebody's house, whenever they've lost a loved one, and I just sit on the couch and don't say a word. And they just talk, and they talk, and they cry, and we, and we sit there together. And at the end of it, they're like, man, that was so amazing. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. They're like, you just showed up. And because you just showed up, you refreshed my soul. Paul was probably sitting in that lowest point, and Onesiphorus showed up. He showed up over and over again, and it refreshed his soul in a way like nothing else does. I think that's the message for Timothy, and it's the same one for us. Just show up. Just show up. If you will make it a point to be in the room, he's saying, if you'll just make it a point to come, you have no clue how encouraging that is for me. Here's the other amazing word, often. Often. It was one thing for Onesiphorus to go visit Paul once. It was costly to do it often. Think about it. Travel was costly. It was financially costly. It was relationally costly, but it was also physically costly. Paul was in a dangerous place. Rome wasn't the place you wanted to be as a Christian. Nero had just burned down the city. He blamed the whole thing on the Christians. He puts Paul in prison, and he's killing people. He's going on a terror I think it's AD 65, and in five years, AD 70, he will destroy the temple, and everything is going down in a bad way, and Onesiphorus is sacrificing his physical presence just to go see his friend often. When I used to travel to India every year, one of the first things they would tell you is don't go the same route every day because people will track your patterns, and it becomes dangerous. By Onesiphorus coming to Paul over and over again, he was creating a pattern that put his life at risk. But he did that because Paul needed him. I love this. Proverbs chapter 3, 27. Listen to what it says. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do you not think it was in his power to go? Right? Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow and I will give it when you have it with you. Onesiphorus had the ability to go and he did. 
I mean, how often have you said something to somebody at just the right time, and you didn't even know what they were going through, and they're like, you have no clue how much I needed that. Being present affords you the unique position to speak into people's lives like nothing else does in that moment. Now, check out verse 18, what he says. This is, this is important because he breaks out into a prayer here. So he's given this example of Onesiphorus, and then he says, and may the Lord grant to find him mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service that he rendered in Ephesus. Here's why that's important. In the middle, in the middle of giving this example, he starts to pray. And if you notice, it's subtle. But maybe in your Bible, I checked multiple translations, that word from the Lord in that day, that word day is capitalized. You can look down and see, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the reason why it is in some of your Bibles is because it's a really important day. It's not just any day. That day is the day when Jesus will come back again and unite his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Here's why that's such a big deal. So Paul, he's talking about Onesiphorus, and he's saying he came and he visited me often, and he refreshed my soul, and then it's almost like he drops the pen. He's like, may the Lord grant him mercy on that day. Many scholars believe that Onesiphorus probably died visiting Paul often, and that the reason why this language is used the way that it is is because he's sitting there remembering his friend. As he's talking to Timothy, he's like, and may the Lord grant him mercy. He was such a good friend, and he came day after day after day because I know that God's going to grant him mercy on that day. Y'all, that's a big deal. Think about the type of friend he must have been knowing that he was risking his life to go to Rome to visit Paul in one of the worst times ever. It seems as if in this emotional moment as he's writing to Timothy, Paul stops just to reflect and pray. Now with that in mind, think about what Timothy must have been feeling when Paul uses him as an example of faithfulness. This guy, he made the ultimate sacrifice to be a friend, and that mattered. It mattered. Not only did it matter, but that sacrifice is what gave Paul the courage to keep going, and it's what gave Timothy the fuel to keep going too. Here's why Paul is doing this. He's reminding Timothy of the truth of the gospel. Listen, even though, even though Onesiphorus might have lost everything, he didn't lose it all because God's going to grant him mercy on that day. That's what he needed to know. He needed to be reminded of that, didn't he? Here's what I think happened. I think Onesiphorus was going to Rome and on one of his journeys, and he got captured and killed. And then he opens his eyes, and he sees the face of Jesus. And here's what he hears. Onesiphorus, thanks for serving me. Onesiphorus is like, what are you talking about? We've never even met. Then he quoted Matthew 25 to him. This is what he says. And when did you see me sick or in prison and visit you? And then Jesus will answer him, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I think Jesus would have been like, you remember when you went and served Paul and nobody noticed? You were serving me. You know why that's so important? That's what you need to know too, and that's what Timothy needed to know. None of it's lost. No matter what happens in your life, you serve the king. And every bit of your sacrifice is worth it, and that's a big deal. You need to know that. Quickly, number two, he wasn't ashamed of his chains. Again, this is super important for Timothy. The point is that, Timothy, you can do it too. You can be afraid, uh, you can be a friend and you don't have to be ashamed. Here's the deal. How many times have we pushed a little harder because we look to our left or we look to our right and somebody's walking with us? Maybe it's they're living the Christian life. That was me. 
In college, I would, I would look at my friends who were able to walk through some of the hardest times where we just wanted to um, do whatever we wanted to do, and I watched my friend Matt walk with integrity and not fall into those traps, and it was what fueled me to keep going. The best example I could think of with this was uh, when I was in college, we'd have to do these 5 a.m. workouts uh, in the winter, and I, I went to college in Illinois, and uh, it was like negative 10 degrees outside, and we'd do these winter workouts, and I'd get up, we'd hate it. We drudge our way to the football facility, get there, and we we just slug it out for hours. And we and at the end of that, you know what? That's what we still talk about today, because that's what formed us. It wasn't it wasn't that we played games together or we played college football together. It was that we dug in in the hardest times of our life and we pushed each other to keep going through it at that moment. And that's what friends do, and that's what Timothy needed to know. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. Paul said, "You don't need to be either. You're going to be fine. I promise you." Because on that day. On that day, you're going to hear, well done, you good and faithful servant. Just keep going. It was the fuel that kept him going. Common experience will do that for all of us. Number three, he searched for Paul earnestly. Earnestly. Look at that word. Diligently. The picture here is that he was dedicated to finding Paul, which means that Paul probably wasn't easy to find. Think about it. He's probably under a heavy guard, under an emperor that didn't want him to be found, and people were probably scared to even talk about where they were. So he would go ask, have you seen Paul? They're like, I don't know who Paul is. Because they, they didn't know. Are you, a, are you a spy or who are you talking to? Every time that he stopped to ask somebody if they'd seen Paul or tried to find Paul, it probably put him in a vulnerable position. But here's the point. For Onesiphorus, being a good friend was worth the risk and the hurt. And it was worth the sacrifice and time and energy. Guys, our situations might be different, but I think the principle is still true. Being a friend is worth the risk and the hurt. You know, obviously, to be vulnerable with yourself and to seek people out, is, it's hard. It's really hard. But life change happens in community. It's where God forms you, and every single person in this room needs to be in community. That's why we care so deeply about small groups here. We believe that when you walk through life through the good, the bad, and the ugly, that's when God really changes you. When it exposes you in all the best of ways. I was listening to a podcast the other day uh, between a guy named Kerry Newhoff and a girl named Jenny Allen. And, and Kerry Newhoff was um, kind of venting in a way about his friendships. And he's like, hey, I just got to ask you a question. He's like, it's so hard because I feel like I'm the only one ever making the effort in my friendships. And it just gets weary and I don't want to do it anymore. And then Jenny, in all of her wisdom, you know what she said? Get over it. That's just life. Here's what she's saying. It's worth it. Take the effort, take the time, and get over it because it's just worth it. Here's what I know. Every friendship I have is worth it. Every sacrifice I've made has multiplied the benefits both for me and my friends. And every time that I get burned, there are 10,000 more stories of how you have refreshed my soul. You see, this kind of friendship, it takes sacrifice, and yet it's always worth it. Every sacrifice I've made in my marriage, every sacrifice I've made in this church, every sacrifice you've made, it's worth it if you'll just do it. Now, with that in mind, with those three practical things, let me tell you this. None of that's the point of this passage. I'm going to give you the point really quickly because it's the point of the entire chapter. You ready for it? Paul is telling Timothy that one day he's going to have to choose. 
He's going to have to choose when it comes to Jesus if he's willing to stick it out or run when things get hard. That's the point. Timothy's struggling. The whole chapter he's struggling. He's ashamed. He's running. Things are getting hard. And Paul takes two groups of people, Onesiphorus and Hermogenes and Phygelus, and he says, you have a choice to make in your life too. You have to choose too. When the Christian life gets hard and there's the proverbial fork in the road and it's no longer easy, which road are you going to take? That's what he's saying. Are you going to be ashamed of the gospel or are you going to be the type of person that chooses to dig in with Jesus? That's the point of the whole point of the chapter. I remember I told you this a couple weeks ago. You can write this down. We don't follow Jesus because he makes life better. We follow Jesus because he's better than life. Guys, I'm just going to tell you the Christian life is not easy and it's not getting any easier. But the ones who stayed made the biggest impact in the world. And oftentimes, oftentimes that impact's not felt right away. Oftentimes it's just hard. And for many of us, we don't stick it out long enough to feel it. And oftentimes that reward, that reward that you're going to get, listen, because this is so important, that reward will come on that day. That's, what verse, that's why verse 18 is so important. The reward ultimately is that God is going to bring down his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and he will grant you mercy. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. It's God looking back over your life and looking over your sins. Listen, if you are faithful, God will come back and he will grant you mercy. Because here's the thing. Unselfish living often goes unrewarded in this life. I just need you to hear me say that. Most people aren't just going to pat you on the back and be like, man, you're great. You're awesome. You're probably not going to have a bunch of cheerleaders. You're a snowflake. Keep going. The reality is, most of what you do goes thankless, but God sees you. And that's what Timothy needed to know, and that's what you need to know too. None of this is for nothing. All of it matters, and if you choose to go and you choose to stay, Jesus will grant you mercy on that day. Guys, the Christian life is hard, but when cultures keep shifting, you can interpret the world by what you know about Jesus and keep going because those who stick it out make the greatest impact. You know how I know that? Because Onesiphorus, you probably never heard of him until this moment. And yet he might be the reason why you've heard of Timothy and Paul because they stuck it out because Onesiphorus visited him often and continued to encourage him along the way. Paul might have given up if it wasn't for that guy. One day, I cannot wait to meet Onesiphorus. The first question I'm going to ask him is, how do you pronounce your name? And then I'm going to be like, and I named my kid after you. Even if it's a girl, I'm going to tell Ani. It kind of rings. Just kidding. Allison probably beat me with a stick if I... You may never get a statue. Your name might not ever be written in the books of history. But if you're faithful and you stick it out with Jesus, you can make an impact that can change the world. Imagine the ripple effects that happen because of this guy's faithfulness that you'd never heard of. I think that that's what Paul wants you to hear and what he wanted Timothy to hear too. Keep going. Be a good friend. You don't know who you're going to interact with and you don't know how Jesus is going to use that. Keep going. It's worth it.